Beloved, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our passage this morning is verses 23 through 28, the end of the letter. And what we have here, beloved, in these closing verses is really summing up Paul's final thoughts. It's a summation of the heart of the Apostle Paul to this church that he loves, this young, fledgling church, though young, yet an example church, a model church. Uh, The doctrines, the truths, the words of wisdom, and even exhortations that Paul gives here at the end are simple, they're direct, and they are rich. And by way of reminder, it's actually been four months since we were in Thessalonians. We had two Sundays where we had special Christmas theme and incarnation theme messages. I was gone last week. Uh, Thanks, David, for wonderfully filling the pulpit, as he always does. So four weeks ago when we left verse 22, you may remember that Paul, in verses 12 through 22 of this fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, gave a series of exhortations of heavy instruction to the church in Thessalonica, by extension from God to you and me. And these are heavy instructions. They're not easy. You see, it's not easy to respect the shepherds above us. It's not easy to love the brothers and sisters around us. It's not easy to witness to those outside of us. It's not easy to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. And even the last verse that we left four weeks ago, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Very simple to understand, very, very difficult to implement successfully. By way of that, it might be at times discouraging. It might even be at times greatly discouraging to us because we know, I know my heart. We know our behavior, not just the outside behavior, but even more important, inside behavior and imaginations and thoughts. In a word, we know how far short we fall of God's call to holy living. Now, in a large swath of the American church, the American church tries in vain to give assurance. Many try to give assurance in vain by minimizing righteousness, by minimizing holy living. Not Paul. Paul never shrinks away from God's charge on his life to call, to exhort, to even command the church towards holiness. He has already in this letter sounded the note of holiness. Back in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, especially verse 13. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And then again, the series of exhortations that we just left, verses 12 through 22. But Paul always comes alongside us. God always comes alongside us. Paul gives us encouragement by pointing to God, by pointing to God's grace by pointing to God's sanctifying power. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul does here as he pivots from the charge at the human level to God's sanctifying grace in verses 23 and 24. The exhortations to holy living in this letter, chapter 3, verse 13, 4, 3 through 8, 5, 12 through 22, are made possible, empowered by God's sanctifying grace. So he shifts 
from commanding us to be holy in verses 23 to 24 to asking God to make us holy with a heartfelt benediction that we see. Beloved, listen as I read verses 23 through 24. I'll pick up the other verses later in the message when we get to them, but this is the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Beloved, the point is, God is not the author of unfinished business. J.I. Packer, in his one of his more cogent moments, said this, quote, You're not strong enough to fall away when God is resolved to keep you. And The point here is, beloved, since God the Father gave his only begotten son to rescue you, to justify you, do you think he's going to desert you some way along the path? No, he will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. We sang before. We have a firm foundation. And it's interesting, in this closing chapter 5, Paul began the chapter by saying there is no condemnation for us in Christ. Verse 5, he says, you are all, we are sons of light. We are sons of the day. We are not children of the darkness. So he began this closing chapter saying there is no condemnation in Christ. Now, he says, he finishes the chapter saying there is no separation because God, not in our own strength, not in our own merit, not in our own worth, not even in our own efforts, we are not separated from God because God is committed to your sanctification and God is committed to your preservation. We see this here in verse 23. He is committed to your total sanctification. And in fact, the God of peace is totally committed to your total well-being, your shalom. That's why he says, look at the verse at uh, verse 23, now, and even that now, that little particle there connects this great heartfelt benediction to the series of exhortations before. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. In the original Greek language, the himself there is emphatically put in a very unique, strange way at the very beginning of the sentence. God himself sanctify you entirely. And the point here, the reason why Paul does that is he wants us to clearly understand only God can do this thing. Now, With sanctification, we do understand there is a synergistic component. There is an exhortation. There is a responsibility. There is human responsibility, and there is divine sovereignty. But the emphasis, the accent here is on the divine sovereignty, the firm foundation we have in Christ. And it is the God of peace, the biblical peace, which is a full sense of well-being and salvation, the shalom from even the Old Testament, the kind of peace, the shalom peace that comes from the Father, was attained by Christ, by the Son, and is maintained by the Spirit. This biblical peace, we could say, is spiritual prosperity in its broadest and fullest sense. And what 
Paul says here as he gives this benediction, this blessing upon the church. He says, may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. May he set you apart as sacred to himself, God himself, entirely. May he make you holy entirely. May he consecrate you entirely. May he purify you entirely. This brings out, beloved, the thoroughness of God's sanctifying word. It's worked. It's complete in all of its aspects through and through. There is no portion of your life that is left untouched. No area of life untouched by or unreached by the pervasive power of God's sanctifying work in your life. So God is committed to your sanctification as you are trusting in Christ alone by faith alone. As you have been adopted into the family, as you are sons and daughters of the Most High God by virtue of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, God is committed to your sanctification. And as we continue on, he is committed to your preservation. The sanctification to which God is committed is perfectly coupled with the preservation, your preservation. God's eternal purpose is to perfect you in the end, and God's eternal purpose is to keep you to the end. This is part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. The divine sanctification we see here, continuing on in verse 23, begins with the inward and the spiritual, and then even reaches down to the outward and the material. That's why I look at the middle of verse 23. He says, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete may it be watched over guarded cared for complete and he says your spirit and soul the spirit and soul that is the inward and the spiritual and body that is the outward and the material this is your life in all of its aspects spiritual intellectual moral emotional and physical beloved you are a single unified entity. And this is even brought out by the Greek grammar. There are three nouns, spirit, soul, and body, but the verb preserved and the adjective complete are in the singular in the Greek. And so even Paul uses Greek language to drive home the point that this describes your whole being as one entity. We are not the, as the Gnostics were originally, where, oh, it's only the inside that matters. It's, it's just the spiritual, the physical, and the outside doesn't matter. No, we do understand that God desires truth from the inside out first. There is a priority, but the outside, the physical, is part and parcel of the whole package of God's transforming work in your life. That's why he says uh, earlier, the entirely, that he would sanctify you entirely. That is the totality of your life from which no part is excluded. And complete here, that, that is the integrity in which each part of your life has its place and proportion in the work of God. And beloved, this is the same dynamic that is at the heart of what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. Do you remember what he said? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Point is, you and I, our responsibility, our charge from our Savior himself is to love our God with our whole being. And 
Nothing is lost in the process. So our heart cry, our prayer is, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That is our prayer. Spurgeon, the prince prince of preachers, said in the context of this dynamic of the preserving power of God, of the keeping motivation of the Lord, he had this to say, quote, Dear brothers and sisters, we need keeping. Therefore, let us adore him who keeps us. There is no stability in any Christian considered in himself. It is the grace of God within him that enables him, the Christian, to stand. The new life that's within us, it will never perish. And, he wraps it up, it is only eternal because God continues to keep it alive. Beloved, that is the firm foundation, that is the keeping power of God, who, again, will never, no, never, no, never, in case we miss the first two times, forsake us, forsake you. What this means practically is your light will not be put out. Your salt will not completely lose its favor, uh, flavor ever because God keeps you. It's the same heart that Paul had when he wrote to the church in Philippi. I am confident, beloved of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, God's sanctification and God's preservation of you go together. And there's a beginning, there's a process, and there is an end to the sanctification. The beginning was at your point of salvation when you were set apart, when you were rescued from being a child of Satan and adopted into the beloved to being a son or a daughter of the Most High God whom you and I now can cry out, Abba, Father. That was the beginning. There's the process of our lives, of us being transformed from glory to glory, of made more and more into the image with the heart and mind of Christ. And there is a completion of that sanctification, which namely will be our glorification. That's why he says, look at the end of verse 23, preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the eighth reference in this five-chapter book to the second coming of Christ. Uh, And in chapter 3, verse 13, at the end of the first main portion of the letter, and in in fact, uh, verse 23 covers very much the same formula that Paul used in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, when he is closing out the first main Portion. In verse 13, chapter 3 in particular, he said that he may, that God may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, Jesus is coming. He came once. That was his first coming. He is coming again. That is his second coming. At his first coming, he came as part of his sovereign eternal purpose to be judged by man. At his second coming, he will come to judge man. And that begs at least two questions. Who will stand at his coming? Who will be taken away in judgment at his coming? You see, it's one thing to appear 
before, before the holy creator God of the universe. And every man and woman will appear before the throne of judgment in the economy of God. So it is one thing to appear before the Lord on that great day at his second coming. It is entirely a different matter to survive that. And he says here that we would be without blame, without defect, without blemish. And in fact, this kind of slightly different variation of the same root word, this one here has even more emphasis on faultless, we will stand before him. Basically, he's saying there no accusation on that great day when he comes again. When you and I, if we're in Christ, if we're trusting Jesus Christ alone by faith alone for our salvation, that no accusation would stick. We would be faultless before that great throne. We understand, beloved, you are, understand this, if you are in Christ, you are without blame. You are faultless right now positionally. But the reality is on this side of eternity, we are incarcerated. Our new inner man, our new inner woman is incarcerated in this unredeemed flesh. But there is an end goal. There is an end game. There was a purpose when God the Father promised God the Son the gift of a redeemed humanity in eternity past. There was a purpose and that's captured in the same vein as we see here when Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 1 22, Paul wrote to them that he, God, has now reconciled you in his, well, Jesus, excuse me, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Watch this. Here's the purpose. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, faultless, no accusation. This same kind of dynamic in this wonderful benediction we see here in verse 23 and then in a moment in 24 was also captured by Jude. In his little 25-verse letter, in verse 24 at the end, Jude also gave this beautiful benediction. He said, Now to him who is, watch this, able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Just absolutely staggering when we consider the holiness of God, his glory, which we, if we were to see his unveiled glory now, we would be evaporated in a second. But one day at his coming, we will stand in the very presence of his unfiltered glory, blameless with great joy. That is part of the gift of salvation. That is part of the very, very good news of the gospel. And this is also, this is all this dynamic of what Paul's bringing out in this benediction here to the Thessalonians of what Jude brought out. This is part of the final answer to Jesus' high priestly prayer. In his humanity, when the Son was praying to the Father in John 17, verse 24, he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am. This all ties together, and this is what Paul is bringing out here in our book. What this means is we, you, me, who were once hostile to God and his truth, who were at enmity with God, were at war with God, we will be brought into his presence as his friend 
fully qualified and suitable for worship, unfettered by sin into the very presence of his unfiltered glory. That is the message of the word of God. And beloved, on that day, your practice will at that point match your position forever. You will appear, you will stand before the throne in his presence with great joy, blameless, faultless, sinless, guiltless, and eternally deathless. This is Paul's benediction. This is God's benediction to you and to me. We will see his glory. We will know his glory. We will enjoy his high noon glory that will never set forever and ever. And our salvation is assured. It is assured because it begins and ends with God. And this is, as we go on to verse 24, what we see, namely that he who calls completes. God upholds those whom he calls and he fulfills all of his promises. He is, God is the faithful caller and he is the faithful doer. Look at the beginning of verse 24. He is the faithful caller. He, Paul writes, faithful is he who calls you. He is faithful in electing you. He is faithful in calling you. He's faithful in justifying you. He is faithful in sanctifying you. And it will culminate with God's faithfulness whereby he will glorify you and he will glorify me. So he is the faithful caller. And as we go to the end of verse 24, he is also the faithful doer. Look at the end. And he also will bring it to pass. Will bring it to pass. Uh, four English words to translate one Greek word, poeo, the root word from which we get our English word poem or poetic. The point is God will accomplish, he will produce, he will yield, he will create this work of art masterpiece. God is the workman, he is the potter, the artist, the creator, he is the maker, and he will bring it to pass. He will bring this good work to pass that he has done in your life in his sovereignty. Again, there is human responsibility, but God's sovereignty is the firm foundation upon which we stand. Now, when we think of God's sovereignty, nowhere, beloved, dear friend, nowhere in Scripture is God's sovereignty ever used, nor is it ever should be used as an excuse for laziness or complacency. Rather, God's sovereign hand in your life and my life gives confident hope, galvanizing hope, energizing hope, motivating hope in the here and the now. I mean, we understand in the here and now that our outer self is wasting away day by day in this body of death. But our inner self, as part of God's faithful good work, our inner self is being renewed day by day by the God of peace for his glory, for our joy. And there is a practical here and now application it was interesting in my sermon notes as I was kind of preparing things. I don't have it in my notes now, but at one point I made a note to myself. I do that occasionally. I said, be careful with applications in verses 23 to 24 because it's a benediction. It's the work of God. But even understanding that there are practical applications here and now about the God of peace. And as I was thinking of the dynamic of peace, see vis possum para bellum. See Vis possum para bellum. 
if you want peace, prepare for war. We are at peace with God, and we want the peace of Christ that we already have, that is already guarding our hearts. We want it to more and more control our behavior because we are engaged in a holy war, not a war with guns and knives and bombs and swords, but a war of holiness, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. What this means, practically speaking, beloved, is you have to get up one more time than the number of times you're knocked down. This means, practically, that you don't let the devil drag you back to the garbage can of sins from which God rescued you out of when he adopted you into the family of God, when you were born again as a new creature in Christ Jesus. Beloved, God will protect you, God will preserve you, and guide you all the way to glory. He keeps us here, and he will take us there. And a final application on this, beloved. When, tomorrow morning, when you awake to the challenges of tomorrow, remember this one thing. God keeps me. God is for me. God guides me. God protects me, preserves me. God is for me. That is Paul's heartfelt benediction to the church of Thessalonica. That is God's benediction to you and to me. Finally, verses 25 to 28, we have Paul's final thoughts. And he moves from that God would sanctify his people to God would unify his people. There's a little pivot here. It moves from God working on our lives to God working in us and through us towards one another. And it begins at verse 25, the very first word, brethren. This is the 14th reference to this word brethren in the letter. This is the first and only time Paul uses that word brethren at the beginning of a sentence as part of an initial opening direct address. Uh, in fact, three times we'll see it in these closing verses, verses 25, 26, and 27. And one more reminder that we have ties that as wonderful as the ties of flesh and blood are, and as important as they are, there are greater ties that bind us together. And this term brethren, it unifies, it includes, and it does exclude. Back at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 4, we know that those men and women, the brothers and sisters that are numbered among the brethren are those who are loved by God and chosen by God. And this is in the context of the man-against-man dynamic that we see unfolding in the world, vividly, horribly in our time, and there's nothing new under the sun. This has been the perennial problem of man since the Garden of Eden. And we should know, you should know, dear friend, that you can't, no one can put this jigsaw puzzle of man against man back together again. It can't be done with the humanistic platitudes, which are vapid and without substance. But, beloved, in this one place, in all of creation, all the things that separate man from man are done away with once and for all. And the matter of brotherhood and sisterhood are settled once and for all in God's church. In God's universal church, in God's local church in Thessalonica, 
in God's local church of Santan Bible Church. Listen as I read the final verses we have in the letter, verses 25 through 28. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God that has been read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. Now, as Paul here, as I mentioned, pivots from God's work in us to God's work through us to one another, there are three aspects that come out here. There is mutual intercession, familial affection, and liberal instruction. And I use the L word in the classic sense, not in the polluted social political sense. Liberal instruction, the word of God. First element here is mutual intercession. Uh, you may remember that Paul opened up this letter by letting the beloved Thessalonian congregation know that Paul and Silas and Timothy prayed for them on a regular basis. Verse 2, chapter 1, Paul opens up saying, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, Paul turns it around, and he really turns the congregation around and say, in the same way, you return those prayers back to the Lord on our behalf. Pray for me and for Silas and Timothy, Paul says. He says, pray for us. And the grammar that he uses here basically says, this is your standing orders. Let this be your continued practice. Continually pray for your shepherds. And he'll Open up 2 Thessalonians with the same dynamic and close 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, brethren, pray for us. Um, Colossians chapter 4, he does the same thing. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, pray on my behalf. What he's saying there in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, in Colossians, in Ephesians, what he's saying is since we are all part of the same spiritual family in the same way that I, and in this case Silas and Timothy, go to our Father on your behalf, you go to our Father on my behalf or on our behalf. And I like the way one man captured this dynamic. He said this, Paul, quote, knew of no faster way to get the gospel through the enemy lines than by recruiting Christian converts into the secret service of prayer, end quote. I've mentioned this before quite a few times, but it's worth mentioning again. Someone one time asked Spurgeon, what was the secret to the success, his great success of preaching? Now, Spurgeon, of course, among anybody, would point to God as the purpose and the author, and the one that gets credit for all things. In this case, at the human level, Spurgeon simply replied, my people pray for me. Beloved, I need your prayers. You need my prayers. We all need one another's prayers because we understand even as by God's grace and mercy, we grow in strength and spiritual maturity. Our spiritual muscles swell. Even as we do that, we understand how frail we are. And God's grace is perfected even in our weakness, even in our frailty. My sweet daughter, Rebecca, shared a prayer request uh, with me. I, um, I was out, anyway, out to dinner, and 
she shared a prayer request. There was a 21, there is a 21-year-old man from Masters University. Um, not, not that this matters in the end, but Rebecca said he was kind of a big man on campus. He was a, a surfer, you know, skier. And again, that doesn't really matter, but that's how Rebecca reported it to me. But what happened was this young, strong man had a ski accident, and he is paralyzed from the waist down. Initially, they thought he might be a quadriplegic. They thought maybe he might be paralyzed from the neck down, but according to my sweet daughter, he's been regaining some feeling in his upper body, but it does look like, my understanding, is a medical prognosis is he will be paralyzed from the waist down. And in response to this, this young 21-year-old man said, now I must glorify God with a broken body. Beloved, that captures humility. That captures the recognition of our frailty, of our physical frailty, and our spiritual frailty. We need prayer. And what use is electricity to a man who doesn't put the plug in the socket? The power is there, but it must be connected. Point is, beloved, pray. As Paul said a few verses earlier, verse 17, pray without ceasing, which has more to do with the disposition of the heart rather than the continual articulation of the tongue. We must pray without ceasing. We must pray for one another. That is the mutual intercession. The second point as we move on to verse 26 is the familial affection. This is the brotherly love among the members of the one great spiritual family. Paul, you'll see at the beginning of verse 26, greet all the brethren. This greeting was common. It was normal in the Greco-Roman world. It meant recognition and affection. It meant respect and concern for one another. But what Paul says here is he says, greet all the brethren. Greet all the brothers, all the brothers and sisters. Uh, Sisters are included with the brothers under this term brethren. And what he says here is all the brethren. So the point here is we reach across every barrier that sin might build between us. We remember even earlier, back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, when he was telling this young church, even though they are at this point only several months old, they are a model church. And in fact, they are an example to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and also in every place that your faith toward God has gone forth. That this describes the global family of God, the international family of God, the worldwide family of God. The family of God where the wall of separation is broken down between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, between slave and free, between rich and poor. Greet all the brethren. And then perhaps a phrase that you've been waiting to come to with a holy kiss. So what what is Paul talking about here? What's going on? Well, beloved, the Bible wasn't given to the people of God as some kind of code that needs to be deciphered. It was written in such a way that the original audience would clearly be able to understand from the wise to the simple. And the way we make application to Gilbert is by understanding what was written to Thessalonica. And you see, in the ancient Near East, kissing was a common form of respect and affection. One would kiss the hand of a superior, for example. One would kiss the cheek of a friend or family member. uh, member. And in fact, 
the omission of this kind of outward demonstration of affection was a social faux pas, even a social faux pas that Jesus cited in Luke chapter 7. He was in a house, and there was a woman who was a great sinner who was a truly repentant person, and she came weeping, and you may remember she was cleaning Jesus' dirty feet with her tears and her hair. And when some of the religious people were saying, oh, what is you letting this woman touch your feet? What Jesus told them was, Luke 7, 45, you gave me no kiss, but since, she, since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And also this mention of greeting one another with a holy kiss, Paul will use it at the end of Romans chapter 16, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the end of first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and then Peter gets in the act in 1 Peter chapter 5. And on a side note here, I didn't have this in my notes, and I reserved the right to go a different angle, but I, right now I'm thinking that after I finish 2 Thessalonians, which we'll pick up next Sunday, I think I might get into 1 Peter and 2 Peter after that. But, as I said, I'll reserve the right. Now, the whole point here with the kiss is it's an outward demonstration that what is professed is true. It's not mere lip service, so to speak, whether it's the words or anything else. John Stott had a great quote here that really captures this. He said this, Christians should greet each other and their verbal greeting should be made stronger, warmer, and more personal by a culturally appropriate sign. So it could be the French la bise, which the French kiss each other on the cheek. It could be a handshake. It could be a side hug. It's some kind of demonstration that what we say is true, that it goes beyond, oh, be warm and be filled. There's something more significant. There's something more real past that. And also, you'll see here that the kiss is qualified as holy. So what that means is, whatever the cultural demonstration is, it must be as such as is becoming of Christ. It must be sanctified and purified. And a side point here, even, even the grammar Paul uses here. So Paul is not specifying, even with his thinking, and certainly the eternal counsel of God understands this as well. Remember when he initially said, pray for us, that he gave a grammar there that says, this is your standing orders. Continually pray for us. He uses different grammar here. If you're into the Greek, it was present imperative. In verse 25 here, it's aorist imperative. So the whole point is, even the grammar tells us it's not the kiss in and of itself. It may change with the culture, but the brotherly affection, the sisterly affection is what must continue on. And while some of us, okay, you, you might have been looking at verse 26, and okay, I want to he hear what he has to say about this holy kiss, okay? The radical part of verse 26 to the original audience is not the kiss. The radical part of verse 26 to the original audience was all the brethren. The radical crossing of all social boundary lines of Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free in Christ. So, mutual intercession, familial affection, finally liberal, in the classic sense of the word, liberal instruction. Liberal instruction in the word of God. Beloved, the word of God goes to everyone. The good news of the gospel is for all the peoples. Verse 27 at the beginning, he says, I adjure you by the Lord. Now, I don't know how many times this last week you used the word adjure, 
But the original Greek word behind that is an extremely strong word, very strong language, extremely strong demand. Literally what Paul is saying is, I put you under oath before the Lord. This is no casual request. He's saying that this basically implies divine judgment if it's not carried out. And he uses this peculiar word. This is actually the only appearance of that Greek word in both the New Testament Greek or even in the Old Testament Greek translation of the original Hebrew. He uses this peculiar word here, a powerful word, with a very specific purpose. It's a solemn statement. It's a strong demand. Also, another dimension here is Paul breaks away from his pattern of we and us, and he says, I adjure you in the Lord. This brings out the force of the demand with apostolic authority. You see, biblical leadership is usually a plurality, but there are times when it demands a singularity, and that is what Paul does here. So, All that to say, why such a strong demand here? I would say it's certainly this and maybe simply this. Paul understood that he's an apostle and he's a channel of divine revelation. He understands that this letter he's writing to the Thessalonians is God-breathed words. It's on the same level as the Old Testament. And so all the people of the church in Thessalonica, all the people of Santan Bible Church, the leadership and the laity, the men and the women, the poor and the rich, educated and uneducated, are expected to hear, to understand, and to obey the word of God. That's why he says, I adjure you in the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Again, all the brethren. Paul wants all the people to receive the word. This letter was the property of the entire congregation in Thessalonica. There are no inner and outer circles in the family of God. There were not to be any inner and outer circles of the church in Thessalonica. There are to be no inner and outer circles at Santan Bible Church when it comes to possession of the word. This is, beloved, to be attended by all, to be believed by all, and to be obeyed by all. We are to understand it correctly, and obey it properly. Now, as we move on uh, from this, from this liberal instruction of the Word of God to the closing verse, verse 8. Now, as I say this, we don't use the word means of grace from this pulpit or from this church uh, because of the significant historical and theological baggage and error. But if for a moment we could strip away the baggage, the word of God, beloved, for all the children of God to study, to practice and teach, that is a means of grace. That's why look at verse 28. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Literally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. This is more than just a final goodbye. This is not an empty conventional formula. While Paul does use some variation of this at the end of every one of his letters, it is heavy with meaning, heavy with doctrine. God's grace, beloved, God's grace, dear friend, is the alpha and omega of the good news of the gospel. It expresses Paul's heart for the church here. More importantly, it expresses God's heart for that church and for this church and for any church. It's how 
he began 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 1, grace to you and peace. How he begins and ends 2 Thessalonians. In a word, we could say grace is the staple diet of the Sunday schools of every Bible-believing church across the world, or the Bible hours, if that's the language that is used. Grace is also, it's a reminder that you and I, we deserve nothing but punishment. God doesn't owe us anything except judgment. Yet, that judgment, the judgment that you and I deserve, fell upon his freely offered son. That's all part of the blessing of the word grace. And even when we think of the great mystery of the grace of God, the great mystery of the grace of God is not why he didn't bestow this grace on some, but the great mystery is that he bestowed this grace upon any, that he bestowed the grace on me. Wonder of wonders, mystery of mysteries. mysteries. And beloved, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God can't keep you. And in conclusion, we see again, God commands us, God commands you, God commands me to be holy. And as the Apostle Paul says here, as Augustine will say later in a different context, Lord, command what thou will, and God, grant what thou hast commanded. Let us be a holy people in service to you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you for the wonder of the gospel, the beauty, the sublime beauty of the truth of your work in us. Lord, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us to rest, Lord Jesus, on the firm foundation that you secured for us, which upholds us and will see us all the way through to the end. Let us excel yet more for your glory, for our joy, and that we as a local church may continue and shine even brighter as a city of light set upon a hill towards a lost and dying world. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now approach the communion table. Amen.